Good morning, everybody. Good to see you again. Uh, my name is Glenn Crocker. Uh, my mom and dad are Jerry Crocker and Sarah Crocker. So if, uh, if we haven't had the pleasure of meeting each other, it's very nice to meet all of you. I graduated in 2003 from this youth group and went on to Mid-Atlantic Christian University and got a four-year degree in Bible and theology. Was a youth minister for about four years at a, a church in Little Washington. And then I decided God wanted me to be where um, students were. So I went back to East Carolina and got a graduate degree from there so that I could be a health and PE teacher. And I have served in that capacity for seven years. And last year, got an invitation to do something in insurance. So I'm bouncing all over the place. But the one thing I'm passionate about, no matter what it is I'm doing, is talking to people about Jesus. And so if you come into contact with me, you're going to hear something about him because I love him and I love the good news that he brings to all people. And so, this morning we're here to study together. If you have your Bibles with you, open up to the book of Exodus. We're going to be in chapter 20, looking at verses 4 through 6. How many of you could recite from memory all ten of the commandments in order? Anybody? Anybody? All right. Second question. Which ones of the Ten Commandments can you say that you have absolutely not broken? I asked my kids these two questions in the car on Friday afternoon. It was fun and interesting, to say the least. If you have not done this yet, you've got grandkids, you've got children, try this little exercise sometime. You are sure to laugh, okay? Now, uh, when I asked them that second question, what what commandments have you absolutely not ever broken? They chimed in and said, I've never murdered anybody. That's good, right? Amen. Let's, let's not go around and make a habit out of doing that, right? I've never committed adultery. I didn't know where that conversation was going to go. <laughs> Especially when they asked, what's adultery, Dad? I didn't know what we were going to end up talking about. All right, so you got to be careful with some of these things. One of them said, I've never misused God's name. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. Not normal in our culture, is it? One of them chimed in and said, I've never worshipped an idol. I thought, hmm, maybe, maybe not. It's very easy for us to take a look at certain issues that we read about and see in Scripture and automatically think that that applied to them way back then, but it doesn't apply to us anymore. And this particular issue about idols and not worshiping idols is one such issue. See, because when you and I think about it, we think about it in what we've seen in the movies, right? It's these little statues that you would bow down and worship. And we say, no, we, we are far too advanced to do something like that. But what if the biggest, what if the biggest fight that we are fighting is that the game has changed. That we're not worshiping these things in the same way that they did way back then. But what if idol worship looks a little bit different today than how it looked back then? When God gave this particular commandment, this is an interesting note. The people of Israel are between Egypt, the idol production factory place of the world, right? And they're between Canaan. This promised land where God says, you will worship me alone. Now, most of the people of Israel at this particular time have grown up in a time where they were used to worshiping all types of different gods. 
they worshipped all types of different things because that's how they grew up. Now, this is an interesting thing to note because for many of us, it's hard for us to break some habits because that's how we, what? That's how we were raised. That's what we were taught to think from an early age. So these people, as they're wondering, and as God gives this commandment, they really don't know an existence or a time without the practice of worshiping these idols. They've never experienced anything like that. And just like for you and I, it's difficult for us to overcome something that we had so much experience in. It's going to be difficult for them to do the same. In Egypt, their worship was for many gods, like the god of uh, Ra, the sun god. My other Old Testament gods that we might hear about, or maybe you've heard of before, Baal was the god of power, prestige, reign, and prosperity, or the goddess Ashtoreth, who was the goddess of sex and fertility. What about Molech? Anybody ever read about the god Molech from the Old Testament? People that worshipped this god would sacrifice their children because of a lie that the people in their community told them. They said, if you don't sacrifice your children to Molech, then what what he's going to do is he's going to kill them in front of you. So either you offer them to him or he's going to kill your children. And so these people followed this lie, even though it defied their logic and it defied the love that they had in their hearts for their kids. And they would offer their children as sacrifices to this God in worship so that he would relent and spare them the heartache of losing their kid. But they were going to lose it anyway. Folks, in the New Testament... We are under Greco-Roman rule. This is the time of Jesus, and the idols were similar. Zeus, the god of anybody know? God of power. Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty and love. Artemis, the goddess of sex and fertility. Maimon, who was the god of wealth and prosperity. But I, for one, am glad that I live in the United States of America And we don't struggle with things like worshiping power, beauty, love, sex, fertility, and wealth and prosperity. I'm glad that we're so far beyond that. Amen? Do you sense a little sarcasm there? You should. The images have changed. The issue has not. The images have changed. The issue has not. And the deadliest wars that we will ever fight are the ones that we don't even know are going on. It's easy for us to sit back again and think that's something that they dealt with way back then and give ourselves a pass when all the truth would point to the fact that we're still just as tied up in idol worship today as any other human being group has ever been. So what does this fight look like for you and me? Well, for some of us that are sitting here today, Your image that you worship is this idea in your mind of the corner office. If you can just make it to this place, your life will be full and it will be better than anything that you could ever imagine. At that point, then you are living. Maybe that's the idol that you worship. Some people, the idol that they worship is themselves. They like making sure that their body looks really, really good so that everybody else notices. And so you see a lot of these people maybe at the gym working out, and they're on the clock. I mean, you can count on them being there 5.30 every morning. Got to get there, got to get it done. And that's a good thing, but if it takes the place of God, 
And if it's a bigger priority than him, then even the good things in this life can become things of worship that get in our way of following Jesus. Maybe for you, it's a sport, all right? Don't mean to step on anybody's toes, but there was a preacher that I listened to. His name is Matt Chandler, and he said a few years ago, he said, I had to stop watching competitive athletics. He said, because I couldn't handle it. If my team lost, he said, it ruined my day. I couldn't get past the fact that this was just a game. He said, I couldn't just enjoy it. So he said, in order for me to be a closer follower of Jesus, I couldn't watch sports anymore because I didn't like the person I was when things didn't go my way. I thought about it even further in this regard because this is something that really connects with me. So sometimes when it connects with you, you elaborate a little bit more. Imagine somebody from the first century having a chance to come to the future with us and they go to a ball game with us, how would they characterize what they get a chance to see? It was the pre-party. And these folks, they might say, sacrificed a large animal on this big grate. It smelled great, and they ate some of it. And then they painted their bodies from head to toe, and they walked into the stadium full of people shouting and yelling and crying out, and they worshiped these little people that were running around chasing each other. Maybe the description that we would get, right? And they might say when they went back to the future or back to the past that those people worship some very odd things. I don't know why. Maybe for you, it's a cell phone that you worship. I can't tell you how many teenagers I've heard who say, Mom, I can't live without it. Please don't take it. That is my life. And that little thing right there is great, help you stay connected, but it can become a God. Maybe for you, it's your image. Now, we don't worship the goddess Aphrodite, but how many people do we hear about in our society that will change the way that they look or form some type of eating disorder so that they can be who they want to be on the outside? We worship a lot of different things. Now, Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6 say this you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or the waters below you shall not bow down to them or worship them for i the lord your god am a jealous god a what god a jealous god punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. You shall not bow down and worship any other God. The idea here is that we place something or someone in God's place. He's supposed to be number one. When we take him out of first place and put anything else in his place, then that thing becomes an idol that we worship. Worship is something from which we get our worth or our value. And that's a very good thing to keep in mind because it's so easy for us to pursue the things of the world for satisfaction. Let me illustrate something for you. Brennan, come up here for me real fast. Now, Brennan is a pretty athletic kid. Yeah, you can stand right up here. If I were to stand right over here and I were to ask him to throw that football, I'm not going to ask you to. There's a lot of stuff we can knock over, okay? But he's a pretty good thrower. 
Now, normally I'll ask the most athletic person in the crowd to come up here and do this, and I knew that he was pretty athletic because he's my kid, right? But what's going to happen if I take Brennan and I made him bend over, put his head on a pole, spin around 10 times, and then he had to throw that ball back to me? Is he going to hit me with the pass consistently? Absolutely not. Why not? He's going to be out of balance, right? He's going to stand up. The room's going to be spinning. It's going to be hard for him to consistently. Now, every once in a while, Brennan might hit the mark because he's a pretty good athlete. All right? Have a seat. Thank you. But I wonder how that illustrates our lives on this planet. We get so busy chasing the things of this world, spinning and chasing and spinning and chasing. It's never enough. And then when God finally calls us to stop and to hit the mark that he's called us to hit, we're so disoriented and so unfocused on what we need to be focused on that we can't do it consistently. Now, 10 out of 10 times, he'd be able to hit me with that pass if he's not chasing other things around And folks, the same thing is true for us as followers of Jesus. If we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, then it would be easy for us to hit the marks that he's calling us to hit. But as long as we're in this rat race of doing the things that this world tells us will bring us satisfaction and joy and pleasure, then we will never consistently hit the marks that God has laid out for us. So God says, don't bow down and worship anything else. Keep me in first place. Idolatry is not an issue. I move that it is the issue, the root of every sin that we experience in our lives. And greater theologians than than I have said the same things. Martin Luther said, you cannot violate the other nine commandments without breaking this one first. Somebody a little more recent, Kyle Eidelman, who preaches at Southeast Christian Church up in Louisville, Kentucky. He says, idolatry isn't just one of many sins, rather, it is the one great sin that all others come from. Idolatry is the root of the problem because God is the creator And since he's the creator, he reserves the right to tell us how to live life. What's most important and what's least important. That's his right. Let me illustrate it for you in a different way. If one of you out here created an automobile, you made it from scratch, and then told the rest of us, you must use gasoline in order to power the vehicle from point A to point B. And we said, that's just dumb. I should be able to put Sprite in the gas tank. It's going to cost me a lot less. And I'll get from here to there however I want to. Who are you to tell me? Well, try it out, brother. And tell me how it works, right? It's not going to work out. The creator has the right to tell you how it's going to work because he designed the product. And he knows what's going to make it work. God, just like that, designed you and I. And he knows how we're going to get from point A to eternity best but we've got to follow the roadmap that he's left for us now the lord tells the people in this commandment that he is a jealous god everybody say jealous god all right now 
we got to unpack this a little bit, okay? Because jealousy is a bad thing in our lives. But the type of jealousy that the Lord has for us, that he has for those that he loves, is not a bad thing. It is actually a good thing. It's proof that you matter to God because he wants to be first in your life. If he didn't care about you, then he'd say, hey, go worship and do whatever it is that you want. But because he's a jealous God and he cares for his children, he says, I need to be first place in your life to make sure you get where you are to where I want you to be. And in order for you to do that, I need you to listen to me. Now, when I got married 14, year, 14 years ago, you're getting old, honey. Wow. When we got married 14 years ago, I remember very vividly what the preacher told me on that night. He said, Glenn, when you say yes to her, it means you say no to everybody else. She's going to become the most important human relationship that you have on the planet. That means she has to be a priority. And the same is true in our relationship with God, folks. When he becomes first in our life, everybody else takes second or third or fourth, but nobody else sits in first place. God's a jealous God because when you made a commitment to follow him and to love him, he expected that he would be first forever now in verse 5 it says this for i the lord your god am a jealous god punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me man this is not a fun verse is it and there's a lot of people who've gotten really confused about what gets said in this verse and some of the confusion comes because we're trying to translate something that was written in hebrew and put it into English terms and make those two things make sense. There's two pieces of translation work that happen. People that translate exact word for word sometimes will write a version of the scripture, give us a translation, and it's hard to understand because they, the translators try to do their best work to translate it word for word. But as you and I read it thousands of years later, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. All right. So what other people do is they try to get the big ideas they capture the big idea and write it in easy English so people like me can understand what it's saying, right? And I like reading versions like that, but there is some value in those word-for-word translations. This is one such example. The term hate here, where it says, God, uh, where it says that uh, he will hold out for those that hate him. Hate means to decrease something in value and place something else of higher importance. That's what hate means. So when we worship an idol, we take God from being number one and place something else. And God translates that as that is what towards him. That's hatred towards him. We don't like that word, but that's how God feels when we put something else over top of him. We don't love him, but we what? We hate him. The other word that's sometimes kind of difficult to understand in this passage is the word punish. The Hebrew word for punish here doesn't mean that because I am a sinner that God is going to punish my children to have to go through the same stuff that I went through as some type of curse of sin. It says that he'll punish the children for the sins of their fathers three to the third and fourth generation. But to punish here means to visit. And to really understand what the passage is saying, think about it this way. Back in the Old Testament, families stayed together. 
That's not our experience here anymore, okay? But it would not be unusual for me and my children to live in the tents of my father and my grandfather until one of them passed away. That's how it existed. So when this verse says that the sins of the fathers will pass on to three or four generations, think about it this way. My son, me, my father, and my grandfather. How many generations is that? So the sins of the father will visit, will visit the kids up to four generations away. And we still have the same experience with that today, don't we? Now, we don't live as closely as we used to, but when you see your family on Christmas, Thanksgiving, everybody gets a chance to see. And here's the big point that God wants to get across right here. Your kids grandkids and great-grandkids will notice the things that you place a higher importance on and you will become a frame of reference for them as to what is acceptable, what is okay, and what is pleasing to God. So when you do things that are against God in their little minds and in the minds of everybody that you have influence over, they will start to say, that must be okay for me to do because look, my grandfather does it. My great-grandfather did it. My father does those things. And that curse will touch three to four generations. Wow. Now, for some of you, you've been touched by some sin in your family for a long period of time. Let me tell you today, you can be the generation where it stops. You say, God, I want you to redeem me, redeem my life, so those sins that have touched my family in the past, stop here and now through your power working in me. What an awesome opportunity we have today to be the place where that stops. Now, in verse 6, here's what it says. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So, the sins of a father will be passed on for how long? Three to four generations. But one faithful follower of Jesus, God says back then, it will be passed on to a thousand generations. If the people of God would stand up in this place and in this time and say, I am taking a stand for the Lord, and those things that have been my gods will be my gods no longer, and I will worship Him alone, you could affect the next thousand generations with your commitment to the Lord. Because you will teach your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren that God is most important and that legacy will live on and make a difference. Not only here and now, but also for all of what? For all of eternity. You're not just talking about what they will experience in this life. You're talking about what they're going to experience forever. And you and I have the opportunity to play a role in that. So what's your choice? What's your choice? What type of leader are you going to choose to be today? What do we do with all of this information? Good question. Ashley Wooldridge wrote a sermon series called Timeless, 
And in that, he offers five questions or statements that he would have us think through. I'm going to read those for you and kind of break them down just a little bit as we think about what the idols in our lives might be. The number one question, he says, what keeps you from being involved in church most often? Now, again, I'm going to hit on it a little bit because this is one of the things that my family could potentially struggle with. Sports are something that we love. We love going to the ball field and being a part and traveling and getting a chance to do all of those things. And it's great. It's fun. But listen to me. My kids are going to watch me. And whatever I make a priority in my life, they will make a priority in theirs. And if they see on a regular basis that we are missing an opportunity to come worship with the Lord's people so that we can be on the ball field, then that's going to teach them a lesson about how they should prioritize their lives. So that question can let me know a little bit about who am I really worshiping? What is really the most important thing? And I need to make sure that I've got that right because what I teach will teach them. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6, verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added, will be given to you. The second question that Ashley Wooldridge would have us consider is, what does your internet search or weekly screen report reveal that you look at the most often online? Now, for many people in our world, they would say social media, right? That's the big thing. Looking for acceptance or uh, approval or attention. Maybe those are the gods that you are placing above the one true God. Maybe your, your search history is a little darker. Maybe the God that you are serving is pleasure because as you look at that search history, Maybe there's some pornographic stuff that's up there. And if that's something that you're dealing with, folks, true pleasure and satisfaction is never going to come from a little blue pill. It's not going to come from a momentary pleasure that you see of some intimate relationship. It's only going to come from having Jesus Christ be the central focus of your life. Because in the end, we will all stand before God and there will be one of two things said, the one that I hope is said for each and every one of us, the one that would be most pleasing at the end of our lives would be, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and rest, right? That would be pleasing. Now, another question. Excluding my mortgage, what do I spend the majority of my money on? So take a look. Do the math this next week. Money can tell us a lot about where our heart is. If you take a look at all of your finances and you find out I'm spending a whole lot of money on the things that I want and I desire, then that might be a clue that you've got an issue in your life and there may be something else that's sitting above God in your life. What about this one? Is there an emotion that you have controlling in your life? Is there an emotion that you have trouble controlling in your life? Because if you're angry all the time, then that thing that you're angry about might be sitting above who? might be sitting above God. What about fear? Fear of what's going to happen during this presidential election. Fear of what's going to happen to my retirement income if things go bad in the economy over the next 6 to 12 months or 18. You're afraid of all of those things. It could be that that would identify an idol that you might be worshiping. 
Or what about this one? If I only had blank, my life would be full of happiness, peace, and contentment. Folks, ask the people that know you the best, a spouse, your kids. Ask them to tell you what's most important to you in their life from how they watch you. You might be shocked at how much they feel like some of these other things are more important than they are. And if they feel that way, there's a pretty good, pretty good case to be made that God is going to feel the same exact way about that issue in your life. Have you ever cleaned out a closet before? I got tons of closets I need to clean out. But every time that I clean out a closet, I have this crazy experience, right? If you don't give that closet, once it's cleaned, a new purpose, if you don't fill it with stuff that like needs to be in there, what's going to happen to that closet? That junk's going to make its way right back in there. And sometimes it's not even the same junk. It's worse junk than the first junk that you threw away, right? And that's just the way that it works. And that's cleaning out closets, folks. The same thing is true of our lives, when we realize and we hear a sermon like here and we like this and we realize and identify i've got some things that need to come out of my life if we don't make a plan to put jesus in the void then that junk is going to find a way to make its way back into your life now i like visual illustrations they help me i'm a visual learner so many times in our lives we're characterized like all these ping pong balls right here having sins and things in us that we worship we don't tell anybody else about it we hide it right but on the inside they're there there are these things that we worship and we start coming to church and hearing the good news about jesus and here's what we do we start to allow god to pour into our lives and guess what happens some of those things start to what start to move out and we feel pretty good about our life because we are not where we used to be and that's wonderful but and this is a big but but this is what most people see from people in the church man look at what god's done for me but when they look at you from a distance what do they still see they still see this and that's why so many unchristian people won't even entertain the idea of becoming followers of Jesus because we claim that God has been given an invitation to fill us up and yet we stop allowing him to fill us up at some point in time and we are a lukewarm Christian. God is good, but I'm going I'm to do what I want to do. God is good, but when it comes to the language that I'm going to use, I, you know, it's just the way I was raised. I, I mean, I've done that for so long. Right? We make a whole bunch of excuses, but the invitation is not just to stop right here. It's, God, fill me up until I overflow in you. And look, folks, there's going to be some stuff that's always going to hang around, but the problem is this stuff does not stick. It doesn't become who you are. When it's just on the surface, it's easy to remove. And when it comes back again, and it's like, I'm going to try to get down in there and get to who you are because you're so full of God, those things can't become a part of who you are anymore because you're full of Him. In this particular passage of Scripture, God is calling us to make Him the priority, the most important for us as Christians to be filled up with Him 
so that the things of the world, the idols that everybody else worships, won't be the most important thing in our lives. Listen again to God's word. This is what you need to remember. Out of all the things that we've talked about today, this is the most important because it comes from the mouth of God. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of their parents, visiting there for three to four generations of those who hate me, who make other things more important than they do me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. That is the word of God. It is the truth of God. And it is one of the timeless ten. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the way that it reveals things about our lives and what it is that we need to change in order to be more like you. Father, thank you for Jesus who set a wonderful example for us on what it means to be human, but what it also means to be fully surrendered to you. Father, I pray that this time this morning has encouraged us has moved us to be better followers of Jesus and that we will live lives that will show people that there is an alternative way of living. They don't have to keep on in this rat race that the world puts on, but there's a better way, a better life, the best life, and that's in you. Jesus, we pray this prayer in your name. Amen.